Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC, N-A-C, stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Michael Gross, your podcast host for today. Welcome. Our podcast guests are Mina Andipan from the University of Toronto, Estelle Archibald from Case Western Reserve University, Deborah Kidder from the University of Hartford, Tyler Okimoto from the University of Queensland, Gregory Paul from Kansas State University. Today's guest and podcast is from a panel symposium sponsored by the Conflict Management Division and the Gender and Diversity and Organization Division of the Academy of Management. The symposium took place at the 81st annual meeting. Today's episode is one of a five-part series on restorative justice in the workplace. We thank our guests for participating in the panel symposium and joining us. Let's listen in on the symposium as it was recorded live at the conference. So that leads us to our next conversation that Estelle will lead us off in. Describe in what ways restorative justice has untapped potential to significantly improve workplaces. Estelle, what do you got for us? Let me uh, start with a launching pad of um, the reality that conflict is ubiquitous in life, in organizational life, uh, and in all kind of lived experience. Um, And the reason why I bring that up is because I think what restorative justice has the potential to do is to help us reframe conflict from two vantages that I'm thinking of right now, based on what I've heard um, today and based on my own reflections. One is that uh, conflict can be viewed as the opportunity um, for learning, development, and growth. And I think that uh, is in part what Deb and Tyler were bringing forth in some of their comments. The other thing is um, around reframing conflict as a liminal state. It is not an end, which means that it's something that we're passing through to get to some greater um, end or resolution, whatever that is. And I think reframing conflict in that way and how we teach people about conflict, whether it's the classroom as an organization or a community as an organized um, agent or an organized venue or or place um, or in more of our formal organizations, I think that what that allows us to do reframing conflict actually allows us to do is to approach conflict differently. We've changed our habit of mind or our mindset about what conflict is and that it is not the end of everything. Um, I've recently administered several kind of qualitative surveys asking people what they think conflict is. And in in today's context, particularly in the United States, given all we have going on socially and politically, 
the first image that often comes to people's mind are things like battle war, not just disagreement, but something more um, heightened and destructive. Um, So I began to pull my students back in the classroom to thinking of conflict as a disruptive opportunity. Okay, how does this begin to help us move from a place that no longer fits who we are as an organization or serves the individuals that are engaged in practice together? Um, And again, highlighting these terms such as engagement and practice together really highlights a relational focus that I think is very important that RJ brings to the fore. Uh, how we how do we begin to re-envision relational practice uh, in organizations and in how we organize, how we build systems and structures uh, in organizations to Greg's point. Um, so in closing for this question, what, what I might add here is that there have been um, in the last decade or so, only a few to my knowledge, and I'm um, hoping to learn about more today, um, organizational theorists or scholars or researchers in organizational studies um, who have really begun to theorize about um, restorative justice practices and approaches. Uh, one was connected to a series of compassion articles. Uh, you all might remember in AMJ, um, this was Fair and Galfand uh, who talked about a forgiveness climate. Now I'm thinking about Nina's comments earlier. Um, and then uh, in Journal of Organizational Behavior, I'm also remembering, I think it was Goodstein and Aquino, Uh, who talked about a different view of organizational justice. And um, I think they called it um, restorative justice for all. Um, And then more recently, and I think 2020, while restorative justice wasn't named, I felt like it was implicated um, by Ramarajan um, and I think it was Reed in another AMJ article where they talked about uh, relational practice or relational reconciliation, uh, which is another, I think, opportunity that restorative justice affords uh, managers and leaders who want to facilitate relational processes and workplaces uh, that support the development and growth of persons. All right. Thank you, Deb. What, what would you like to contribute to this question? Okay, so um, stressing the untapped potential, that says to me, the part of it is that very few people know about restorative justice. So there's definitely a teaching element involved. But in the, in the spirit of restorative justice and difficult conversations, I'm kind of gonna go sideways on this. I'm assuming that there are several people in the audience that don't have direct experience or much knowledge of anything of restorative justice. So I want to give some bare bones kind of details to help you understand where the untapped potential is and where the challenges are. So for instance, one of the things that's very important if you want to have restorative justice work effectively in the workplace is everybody needs to be willing to do it. Um, you don't do that, then you have problems. Um, so to say that restorative justice can just be used whenever and wherever and it'll be perfect is unrealistic. So what I want to say is, yes, there's absolutely untapped potential. It is, in my mind, an excellent way to help 
repair trust when you have damaged relationships in the workplace, but there are um, stipulations. Everybody needs to volunteer. I also, for any of you who've seen Greg's article on MCQ, I'm not sure I would actually advocate codifying restorative justice practices because it can backfire, as he found out. In my mind, just establishing these rules in the workplace, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, probably will get really structured. And I'm still all about just teaching the philosophy behind it and the, the un- importance of taking responsibility for your actions, acknowledging when you caused harm um, and trying to repair that harm, embracing the fact that somebody has been harmed and that they need to be restored, um, the, the, the community spirit involved of everybody working together on it. The other thing that is absolutely critical for this to work in the workplace and this kind of goes against what I've just been saying, is not having just a manager do it after they've taken one of my uh, leadership classes, okay? Um, If you have a significant conflict in the workplace with significant harm, uh, sexual harassment, Black Lives Matter, I know we're going to talk about that more um, in a later slide, but is absolutely critical to have a trained and effective facilitator. But a caveat is, it can get worse. You can make things worse and you can um, get the conflict spiral out of control if you don't have somebody doing it well. So I absolutely believe there's an untapped potential because um, I would love everybody to understand the concept of restorative justice, to be part of our lexicon when we talk as leaders in the workplace. But I also want people to be realistic about when it can be effective and when not. All right, thank you. Uh, Tyler, what do you have for us? Yeah, so so kind of nicely flowing from what, what Deb was saying there. You know, whenever I give uh, presentations to, to practitioner audiences, you know, HR managers, uh, practicing managers, um, and I talk about restorative justice, you know, as, as Deb said, most people are unfamiliar with the term, uh, and those that are familiar with it are more thinking like truth and reconciliation or, or, or criminal justice. But when you actually talk about what it means and what's behind it, it's actually very similar to what good managers seem to be doing a lot of anyways. Um, it's almost like intuitive to what best practice is for a lot of people. Now, now don't, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of bad managers out there. <laughs> and and you know, so, so you know, there's a lot of diversity about uh, what people are talking about. But, but those that use something like restorative justice, uh, you know, more dialogue uh, agreement-oriented practices, they they draw out very similar ideas and constraints uh, in their own practice. And so in, in that sense, um, restorative justice for good relationship-oriented managers is somewhat intuitive. But I actually think that that's a good thing because it means that what we're looking at in research and drawing from other domains um, is actually triangulating with what good practices um, uh, you know that that restorative practice is emerging organically from from um, experts uh, crafting their own their own behaviors, um, just as it is uh, coming from research. What that also means, though, is that there's potential to learn uh, in really both directions, right? So as we're working through the research and trying to understand constraints and, and limitations. Um, of restorative practice, that information will be really useful to managers that seem to be using this uh, this sort of approach uh, quite regularly already. Similarly, uh, we can probably learn a lot from speaking to managers that are doing this or 
or engaging as practitioners uh, ourselves, as, as many of you do, to really get a sense for where those limitations are and, uh, and draw the lines between the theory and the research. Another thing that I think is, is potentially um, you know, untapped potential, since that's the topic of this question, that, that you also kind of draw on, on Dev, is that in addition to clarity about when it works and when it doesn't work, we can also perhaps think a little bit broader about what restorative justice practice actually is, not just in terms of like context and culture facilitators. So, you know, what sort of cultures, organizational cultures does restorative justice work and when, when it doesn't work, but also thinking about restorative justice almost as a more climate oriented um, idea. So, you know, similar to the idea of forgiveness climate, <laughs> you know, it's the idea that perhaps this is just the way that we solve problems in our organization. And so rather than thinking about it as a series of or, or category of types of practices, you know, maybe we can also think about restorative justice as, um, as really just the way that we do things around here uh, when it comes to conflict. So I think there's a lot of kind of untapped ideas. Uh, I think about it from a researcher standpoint, um, but you know, there is benefit to, to looking at it from both researcher and practitioner angles. All right, thank you. Okay, Greg, what do you got for us? Yeah, I think about this uh, from a growth and learning perspective when it comes to untapped potential. Um, and so uh, a lot of this is the ability to look inward and ask what are those values, ideals, beliefs, hurdles, uh, et cetera, that I bring to the table? Uh, and how is that shaping the way that I'm understanding what I've perceived as hurtful? How is that understanding the way that I talk about conflict? How is that understanding the way that I uh, define my relationship with the other person? Uh, similarly, um, when we think about restorative justice, it can also give us a framework against which to evaluate sort of the ideological underpinnings of our workplaces. What do people in my organization think about conflict? What do people in my organization think uh, is the right way for wrongdoing to be addressed? Um, because to Deb's point, if we just come in and say, all right, everybody, we're going to do dialogue with one another. I know you two have been at loggerheads for about 10 years, so we're going to try this. That's going to go poorly. So instead of just looking at restorative justice as a tool, that, hey, you know, just like I need a screwdriver to uh, address this particular issue, to me, we've got to look at it as, as a framework or as a way of organizing. So in, in much the same way as we think about it as climate, and much the same way as we think about it as helping people to learn or teaching people about why they do what they do and why the other person does what they do, we could think about restorative justice as a way to think about our own beliefs um, and the beliefs that are advocated for in our workplaces uh, and the beliefs of the other people that we work with on a daily basis and ask, are these the ways that we want to be living with one another? Are these the types of relationships that we might want to have with one another? When we think about how we work through some of these difficult situations, how do we make sense of these situations? And then can we turn around and help people have a language or a lexicon that they can use to make sense out of really difficult situations? Because I find if, if we're able to reframe something away from, you know, let's say away from a battle metaphor, 
right? If we're able to reframe it into more of a learning or growth uh, type of perspective, away from maybe a victim-offender uh, orientation, uh, and, uh, and but sometimes, you know, I say that while also saying there are victims and there are offenders, right? So we don't want to completely remove those words. But if we're able to give people vocabulary that helps them to be able to look beyond at what they're experiencing now and to who they're becoming, I think that can help us to think about the way we organize from a more forward-looking, aspirational, constructive type of approach. All right, thank you. So, Mina, it's been a while since we heard from you. <laughs> Your thoughts? Um, sure. So, I think I'm going to, I mean, I think my thoughts build on a lot of the wonderful things that have already been um, stated. But in terms of what Greg was mentioning about sort of creating a culture around restorative justice, to me, um, when we're thinking about the untapped potential, so as you mentioned, I'm working in um, the School of Public Health right now. And so, a lot of our you know, students in our community are, you know, physicians practicing, you know, surgeons, doctors, etc. And so as you can imagine, the kind of the hospital venue is extremely focused on failure prevention, right? So how are we reducing sort of patient risk? How are we kind of not, you know, looking at death rates, mortality, and all that kind of thing? And so there's so much um, focus on sort of avoidance of failure and how do we um, approach what they, you know, they call failures, right? Um, and so to me, restorative justice, it kind of brings in this piece as well, which is saying, okay, maybe I've hurt someone or there has been some sort of failure, right? A breakdown in our relationship and our communication and how a person feels that they were treated and trust, et cetera. But it opens up the sort of... Um, environment where you can say, how do we approach failure? How do we approach our mistakes? And how can we discuss them? How can they make us better in what we're doing? And a lot of the work around healthcare really focuses on that too, right? So, okay, this patient didn't make it through the surgery, but what is it that we've done that has not, you know, led to that sort of outcome? And how can we prevent that in the future? And I think restorative justice, sort of one of the great parts of it is really saying, how can we use this you know, this, this sort of framework or tool or however we want to see it as helping us sort of rebuild those relationships and thinking about, okay, you know, maybe I made a mistake or maybe I, you know, didn't talk to someone in a way that, you know, they appreciated or I didn't express this, um, you know, kind of performance evaluation in the right way, et cetera, right? And so it caused this sort of harm to another person, um, a colleague of mine, a subordinate, a supervisor, but how can I approach that in a way that's developmental to our relationship that's going to be positive? And I feel that that, piece of it still remains a little untapped. And part of that to me is sort of this underlying psychological processes where people are really, there's, right, there's still this kind of fear of failure. And perhaps if I don't address that issue that has, you know, been brought up, or if I, you know, ignore it, and it's going to, you know, go away, or people won't realize it happened, et cetera, which doesn't actually occur. And so I think there's a lot there that hasn't really been tapped into as much as it could be in organizations to really create a positive working environment where we're much more open to error. And a lot of innovative organizations have realized that really around the tech space. But I think when you look at the relational piece, it hasn't been realized maybe as much as it could be. I think. What we learned from our podcast guests across all parts of this five episode series is the untapped potential of restorative justice to improve workplaces in part two. As our series name states, I'm glad I know that now. What's more, I'm Michael Gross, and on behalf of all of us, we thank our guests, Mina Andriapan, 
Estelle Archibald, Deborah Kidder, Tyler Okamoto, and Gregory Paul. Thank you for being with us today. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Sai, Michael Gross, that's me, Jennifer Parlamas, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Sai, we thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictmanagementteam.com. Negotiation and Conflict Management Team is one word. There you can find additional sources and links to materials cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.